friends, I'm Maria Peña, here with another episode of Voices for Change, where each week I will introduce you to people that are doing their part to enrich and empower the Hispanic community. Later on, I'll tell you how you can help make our podcast better, because it is, after all, a program meant to inspire everyone who wants to contribute to change in their communities. Welcome to another episode of Voices for Change. We have with us today Antonio Arellano. He is the interim director of JOLT, the largest Latino progressive group in Texas working to empower young Latino voters. He's here to talk about next steps after a historic ruling in favor of Dreamers at the Supreme Court, even as President Donald Trump seeks to end DACA once and for all. Welcome to the program, Antonio. Hey, it's so great to be with you. So let's start off by discussing these two huge wins for Latinos everywhere, the DACA ruling and before that, uh, the ruling on uh, gay rights in the workplace. Talk a little bit about what happened and why those two rulings are significant for the Latino community. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's it was a monumental week last week that our nation um, experienced. And like you said, on two major fronts, both in regards to LGBTQ protections and um, the standing on DACA. Uh, to be quite honest with you, both rulings were unexpected for me in particular, um, seeing as how the Supreme Court has recently aired on the side of the Trump administration, most notably with the Muslim ban that it upheld um, and other merit-based immigration cases that it has upheld. So I think that what we're seeing here is a monumental shift uh, for equality, for, um, for true representation, for dignity, for respect, for communities of color in this country um, in a way that is being driven by LGBTQ voices, driven by people of color, driven by undocumented leaders, um, racism, discrimination, homophobia are issues that have plagued our nation for centuries, quite frankly. Um, but we're seeing an uprising from a new generation and, and empowerment by people of color because they're fed up with the system that has oppressed them for so long. Um, so it's exciting times um, in this country. It's also scary times because there's so much uncertainty, but we believe that we must remain optimistic. At my organization, JOLT, here in Texas, we're focused on doing just that and creating an empowering and powerful message for young Latinos to recognize the full power and potential that they have to create change during this moment. You know, the president's immediate reaction to the DACA ruling was that this is an example of why he needs to uh, nominate more judges that, in his view, are conservative enough. So talk to us about the next steps. Obviously, he is determined to continue this battle um, to get rid of DACA. Right. So you bring up two very crucial points. One of them being that in this up, this upcoming election, uh, the United States is not just deciding who the next president will be, but they're truly deciding what kind of nation, what kind of country America will be. And uh, if the Donald Trump, if Donald Trump gets reelected, he has an opportunity potentially to begin to stack the court even more towards a conservative leaning um, court, which would signify Trumpism as it is in America for at least the next 40 years if he's able to elect another Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. A lot of conservative voters are going to be voting just 
based on this alone. And so what we need to do is recognize that we have here a true opportunity to bring about transformative change or to put the democracy of America in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So just let's remind folks what this ruling means. The ruling means that for now, things go back to the way things were before September 5th, 2017, when the Trump administration announced that it was getting rid of DACA. Uh, so in theory, that means that DACA holders can continue renewing their permits, number one, and potentially apply for new permits. Uh, where do things stand right now on that? Because USCIS and DHS have been silent on whether or not they're going to comply with this court ruling and how. Well, you know, the thing is that they have to comply, right? This is the largest court uh, in the land. And, and the Supreme Court has ruled to upheld DACA. So you're absolutely right. The next couple of steps in regards to immediate action would be to renew your application to DACA if you haven't done so already and to apply for DACA if you're eligible. And, you know, for folks who are still not familiar with DACA, um, you know, there's a vetting process, a very rigorous vetting process that goes into making sure that you qualify for this program. And so including making sure that there's no criminal background and, and passing a background check and so on and so forth. It's imperative that those who are eligible for DACA begin to um, apply for this process. Mm -hmm. And I think that here in the next coming couple of days, we will hear from uh, immigration uh, services here in the country as to how they are going to begin to uh, move forward with this. And the second part of the ruling basically suggests that the administration can still dismantle DACA. So there's still the possibility that he can come back to the court with other reasonings. Um, and, and what we know is that um, there is going to be another battle, that, that we've, we've, we're still going to continue fighting forward, that this fight is not close to ending just yet. Um, and so that's why there's so much emphasis being put on the urgency of applying or renewing immediately. Um, the House passed a bill uh, a year ago that the Senate hasn't acted on at all, not through a hearing, debate, or vote. It's just sitting there. What can advocacy groups like yours um, do to um, demand that Congress lives up to its duty and provide a permanent solution for dreamers. In this moment, we call on Congress to have the courage to move forward with immigration reform. They have been kicking the can down the road for way too long. I mean, undocumented immigrants in this country have been promised comprehensive immigration reform since Ronald Reagan. We need to make sure that we recognize that we can't continue to leave these people living their lives in limbo. Here in America, you saw during this global pandemic how our essential workers, the folks who were unable to work from home because they're the ones picking our fruit and bagging our groceries, are the ones that are most in danger. Yet we treat them the worst and we are not even proposing a plan to protect them or to provide them with citizenship when so many of them have earned it. You know, I often tell my friends, what have you done to earn your citizenship? And they say, well, I was born here, right? And so many of us have been working our entire lives to prove our worth, to prove uh, by through our merits that we are worthy of this nation's um, recognition. 
folks like me who came to this country at the age of three years old. I've grown up watching baseball games, eating hot dogs, um, uh, pledging uh, pledging allegiance to the flag, singing the Star Spangled Banner. I'm just as American as the first lady of this country. And to be rejected citizenship is truly ludicrous. Um, It's imperative that we start recognizing that the subject of immigration in this country has very little to do with who has papers and everything to do with race. That's why there's a border wall being proposed at the southern border with Mexico and not a wall with Canada. Um, How did you get involved in the movement uh, in terms of all the advocacy activities that you do? Um, Share some of that with us. You know, folks often tell me, Antonio, why do you do this work? And particularly in Texas of all states in such a vocal and unapologetic way, are you not afraid? And I say, Dr. Martin Luther King must have been afraid. Harriet Tubman must have been afraid. But we cannot allow fear to paralyze us, especially in such a moment like now. What in your personal history um, drove you to, to this moment where you saw this fork in the road and you decided you chose the path of activism versus any other way of trying to make a change in your community? You know, growing up in this country, I quickly realized that people like me are treated differently. Um, I remember particularly after graduating high school and trying to enroll into the university that in 2009, DACA didn't exist. And so I was being charged out-of-state tuition. Uh, I was categorized as an international student uh, merely because of my legal status. Um, I was having to pay twice as much for the same classes as my peers. Um, There were so many challenges to get equality in this country, to get a driver's license, to have an opportunity to open up a bank account, to, to, to do just mundane things. I realized that the system was stacked against me. And I quickly recognized that that was not fair, that it was not okay that I had followed all the rules, had no criminal background, had complied with all of the expectations that society imposed on me, that had gone to ex- had done extracurricular activities, gotten all the best grades, and yet here I was, still the underdog. And so it inspired me to begin to break down the barriers um, for for people of color in this nation. And I and and. And I learned from the greats, you know, like looking at Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta Mm -hmm. and the the Chicano movement, um, what challenges they had to face and how that fought was never really won, how those challenges still exist. Um, I know firsthand how many uh, meals my grandparents had to miss, um, how many odd jobs my parents had to work to provide us with an education, my siblings and I, with an opportunity at a better uh, future. And so that's exactly why I'm committed to doing this work, to make sure that those sacrifices weren't in vain mm-hmm. and that our communities don't continue to be disrespected. Is there a particular incident that stands out in all your years of activism? There's been a lot of really powerful moments uh, throughout the past decade that I've dedicated myself to human rights and advocacy. Um, in particular, though, the whole movement to win DACA was such a pivotal moment in my life. You see, people 
um, need to remember that DACA wasn't just an executive order that came out of nowhere. Yeah. It was an executive order that was forced by marches, rallies, protests, sit-ins, mm-hmm. by a new generation of young people who came forward and said, I can no longer live like this and I demand my humanity to be recognized. And so I remember um, organizing with uh, friends and family, uh, protests and marches um, during the Obama administration Mm -hmm. to get recognized, to get heard. And it was such a freeing moment because in that moment, up until that moment, we we had grown up being told to be silent to hide, to not tell anybody about our uh, legal status, right? But we were at a tipping point where if we continued to be silent, our lives would be in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And there were so many moments where I would come home um, having lost my voice from screaming and yelling at protests and rallies, um, exhausted from from the, the sun and the heat of being out um, all day since the, the break of dawn, organizing, mobilizing people, um, from sharing my story over and over again and having the courage to begin to let people in, to give a human voice to DACA uh, was such a powerful moment mm-hmm. uh, for me and I think that has contributed greatly to my continued determination to bring forth transformative change in this country. You know, the the chant that stands out from me, uh, for me from those dreamers was the undocumented and unafraid. And I'm wondering if that particular chant gave President Obama courage, because I remember when he was, and people criticized him for saying that he didn't have authority to help dreamers. So so I'm wondering what lessons you take from both the the failures and the successes of the dreamer movement going forward. So I agree with you that I think undeniably that the amount of pressure that people from all over the country applied on the Obama administration ended up resulting in the executive order. It's it's I mean it's it's undeniable that we forced this to happen. Um, we, we forced our humanity to be recognized. When you have a interest and a, a, a rally cry as undocumented and unafraid um, that truly connects with um, people at such a personal level, um, it's, it's, it's a magical moment that truly um, um, has the power to rewrite history. We take this from lessons in history where we have seen um, young people mobilized like never before through art and music and culture and protests to call for the end of war, to call for the end of, um, um, of bringing down the Berlin Wall, to call for um, the end of segregation, to call for the, the civil rights movement. It has been people of color organizing, coming together and making sure that this nation realizes that it's for the people and by the people, and, and the obviously having obviously having uh, white people as 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 allies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important to make sure that that folks who do have privilege recognize their privilege and utilize it to advance the nation's um, um, society for the greater good of all. Right now, our country is going through 
uh, a triple crisis. We have the COVID-19 crisis. We have an economic recession. And out on the streets for the last month almost, you know, daily street protests demanding solutions to systemic racism and police brutality against people of color. Talk about the impact of this three crises that I mentioned in our Latino community. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And you said there a, a, a buzzword for me, which was minorities. So this is one of the reasons that I believe we're seeing such unrest in this country is because the reality is that we soon won't be a minority, that our population is becoming blacker and browner than ever before, that the diversity in America can no longer be ignored or rejected, and that white people in this country are having to come to terms with the fact that there is a growing and an insurgency political power that comes along with that. Um, here in Texas, Latinos uh, will soon be the, the uh, ethnic uh, majority of the population. Um, 200,000 Latinos will turn 18 every year for the next 10 years. And with that comes a lot of political power. So at my organization, Jolt, we are talking to our community about making that mental switch from minority to majority and what that symbolizes. Because we have grown up listening and being told that we're a minority for so long that we operate in that space and in that mindset. But here's the truth. We are brown, black, and brilliant, and we refuse to wait any longer to be recognized as such. I think that it's time for black and brown communities to come together and to recognize that individually we are powerful, but together we are unstoppable. And we have the potential to not just transform states like Texas, but transform America. Um, give us examples of how this systemic racism uh, plays out in our daily lives. A lot of people don't believe that there's systemic racism. What they argue is, you know, there are social inequalities, um, but they try to separate the social inequalities and the economic inequalities from uh, an institutionalized or structural uh, racism. Well, I think you just need to look at where the poverty exists. Why is it predominantly black and brown neighborhoods that are stricken by poverty? Why is our jail system filled with brown and black bodies? Why is incarceration rates in America um, uh, tallied up by people that look like me and have a name like mine, right? That's not a coincidence. That's strategic. That's because the systems that were developed in this country, even from its democracy, if we go back to the inception of democracy in America, it was based on giving the opportunity for white land owning men to vote. It was never, ever designed to allow people like me or you to participate in this process. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing here is that we are now participating in a system that had no intention to work or operate on our behalf. And remember that at one point, um, you know, Black Americans had to pay a tax and show a literacy test to vote, right? Absolutely. And those literacy tests are now being repurposed. Like we, we see now through voter ID programs in, in the state of Texas, um, another, another modern way of oppressing voter suppression um, is refuting online voter registration for a digital generation. For example, in Texas, the largest eligible voting block are young Latinos, but you can't register to vote online. And when you can't register to vote and mobilize the largest voting block, you must ask yourself why? 
why? Why does our government, which is conservative ruled, um, so apprehensive about facilitating the access to the ballot box for everybody who's eligible. And the main reason is because we, as people of color, we as Latinos are so damn powerful. Okay. We've got Republicans shaking in their boots in Texas. They're retiring at record rates like never before. And it's because they're seeing that they can no longer uphold the discriminatory and racist pieces of legislation that they have been peddling for decades in this country. And it's important that we start to break away from those mentalities of assimilation, that we've got to assimilate in order to fit in and to be accepted. No, you're going to value Antonio Arellano Sanchez in his full existence, no matter what. And you're going to be okay and become comfortable with the fact that we are well-educated, that we contribute in significant ways, and that we need to win back the respect and representation that our community so desperately deserves. Mm -hmm. Antonio, Texas has a chance, uh, you know, it's going to be a swing uh, state this year. Um, and there's either e even a potential of it turning blue. We keep talking about how we're no longer a sleeping giant. So where is the enthusiasm among Latino voters if they really want to see change? Yeah, so two things. Um, one, I personally think that when people address Latinos as the sleeping giant, I think that that is a racial trope because it tries to depict Latinos as lazy as, um, and it brings back those images of the, the, the Mexican with the sombrero that's yeah. sleeping next to his beer that is, has been so emblematic of the way that our community has been depicted in imagery and art in this country. And that's just simply inaccurate. What, what, where is the strategy failing to mobilize Latino voters? I believe that it's all in messaging. And at my organization, Jolt, we are strategizing around art, culture, and digital, particularly since we focus on young Latino voters, 18 to 32 year olds. And so what we recognize is that if they cannot see themselves reflected in the political process, they are not going to engage. So we're putting brown and black people on our materials, on our brochures, giving their voices an opportunity to be heard um, through our platforms, through social media, through digital, harnessing the power of Latina culture to create and transform democracy at it is. One of the main programs that Jolt is doing is called Poder Quince. So Jolt is the only organization in the country that does voter registration at quinceañeras. But as soon as this wraps up and the CDC gives us the green light, we will be back um, in celebrations such as uh, quinceañeras, doing voter registration on the spot. What we do is we prepare quinceañeras in Austin, Dallas, and Houston to give a passionate speech during their event where they say, I pledge that when I am of age, I will vote to defend my community against discrimination and racism. And I call on you, my family and friends, to let your gift to me on my quinceañera be your registration to vote. And you're seeing grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles that have never voted before get up, come to the back of the room where there's Jolt staff ready to register them to vote. See, the model of mobilizing voters in America is formalized around two major points phone banking and block walking. This strategy has been the bread and butter of democracy, but it was constructed to mobilize middle-class white voters. If you think you can go into Latino majority neighborhoods in Texas, <laughs> knock on my abuelita's door and she's going to engage with you, specifically if you don't sound <laughs> like us or look like us, you're sadly mistaken. We've got to meet our community where it's at. We need to innovate the way that we do civic engagement in order to grow and expand and defend our democracy.
the red, the red, white, and blue messaging doesn't necessarily appeal to Latino voters. So uh, I'm glad that you brought up how there's other creative ways to engage them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this uh, um, this red, white, and blue uh, uh, messaging is just not creating enthusiasm amongst the base, particularly of young voters, right? And now it seems like it's almost been um, hijacked by the Trump administration in this very uh, nationalistic approach um, to politics that unfortunately has become now synonymous with a lot of the discriminatory and uh, racist rhetoric. Do you think political candidates are doing enough outreach to Latinos? What we see in political candidates is that they often um, wait until the last minute to engage Latinos. And not, don't get me started on how monolithic they think we are. Stop coming into Latino communities, having your one rally and talking just about immigration for an hour. We care about healthcare. We care about climate change. We care about gun safety. We care about the economy. We care about racial equity. We care about closing the 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 equality wage for for women. Um, so Latinos are not monolithic. Latinos need to be engaged. And when people tell me Latinos don't vote, I tell them Latinos haven't been convinced to vote. Antonio, you know, and I hear you, what, I, I hear what you're saying. And this has been a warning that political candidates have heard before. This isn't new. So what explains what, if I hear you correctly, what explains that Latinos are still being treated as an afterthought? I think that they're going to have to recognize um, in, in the hard way that they can no longer take Latino voters for granted. And, and the thing is that the demographic of this population in America is changing. Latinos are, are, are on a path to become the majority of the population. You cannot run a political campaign in America in 2030 and 2040 and ignore the Latino vote. You just won't be able to do it. It will be impossible for you to win the White House without um, at least 40% of the Latino vote. What's missing is that they don't have culturally competent staff. They need to hire Latinas. They need to hire Latinos and put them in positions of power within their campaigns that tell them, hey, you need to start going to the Rio Grande Valley. You need to start talking, going to Arizona. You need to start going to Nevada. You need to start spending more time there than in Idaho or New Hampshire. Okay, when you have uh, uh, states that are prioritized because of their place in the primary election that have 3%, 6% um, communities of color living in them, that is not representative of the population of this country. That, For example, one out of every five Latinos in this nation called Texas home. And Texas is home to 38 electoral votes, 36 congressional seats. You need to invest and invest heavily in Latino voters in Texas. And let me tell you something else. You need to start investing in Latina voters. Latina women are voting at a higher percentage rate than their Latino male counterparts. They're leading the way in civic engagement in the state. And they are destined to become the future of the United States. The future is female, but what people need to recognize is that she is a Latina. And speaking of losses, um, Michael Moore on Instagram uh, gave out a really dire warning over the weekend that if you think President Trump is going to lose this year, you're deluding yourself because the base remains loyal to him. They, uh, they support him and he may win again. How do you explain that there's even a group of dreamers supporting Trump? What's going on with that? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think um, in essence, the warning is right, um, which is do not take this election for granted. Do not believe that because we have seen such devastating impacts from this administration that he is destined to lose. Uh, what we saw there was an awakening from a conservative sector of this population that Donald Trump appeals to. Donald Trump is very good at marketing and branding. He has fooled um, the American public into believing that he is a uh, self-made billionaire and a man who can produce those kind of results for the rest of the nation. But that is inaccurate. And unfortunately, so many of our fellow Americans have been conned into believing that. But what we can't be conned into believing is that he won't win. We've got to make sure that we recognize that this election will be a very, very close election. If you have the privilege of being an American citizen and being eligible to vote, please do not sit this one out. And it's imperative that now more than ever before, we mobilize our friends, our brothers, our tias, our tios, our primos, people that we've never talked about politics with before. We need to encourage them to have a plan to go out and vote on November 3rd. Mm -hmm. And on that note, um, what message do you give young Latinos um, that are sitting on the sidelines that don't feel like they, like little old me, can't possibly have any power? What message do you give them and also those that, that can and should go out and vote? You know, my message is a simple one. We've got to stop looking to the left and stop looking to the right for a savior to come and rescue us. We have got to start looking within us. Believe in yourself, believe in the capacity that you have to drive forward change and fearlessly and boldly demand it. Thank you so much for joining us, Antonio, and good luck to you and all the work that you do out in Texas and nationwide. Of course. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, friends, that's it for today's episode of Voices for Change. Thank you for tuning in. We hope to continue bringing you inspirational stories like the one you just heard. We thank you for your ideas, suggestions, and comments. So just look us up on social media or send us an email at VocesForChange at gmail.com. Remember Gandhi's great advice, be the change you wish to see in the world. Until next time, 